Hello and welcome to Sounds and Sweet Airs, the podcast for Shakespeare Music Study Group. My name is Michelle Asai and I'm the founder and chair of the group. It is my pleasure to share with you my recent conversation with two of the most prominent figures on the current classical music scene, Sir John Tomlinson and John Caskin. Sir John Tomlinson is the leading British bass singer. He has dominated the operatic stages of the world for decades, working with many prominent conductors and composers. One such composer is our other guest. John Caskin is one of the UK's most highly regarded living composers. His music is praised not only for its distinctive expressive qualities, but also for its eclectic sources and inspirations, from painting to poetry to landscape and now with his latest collaboration with John Tomlinson, Shakespeare. The main topic of our conversation was John Caskin's new Shakespeare-inspired work, The Shackled King, a music drama based on King Lear, featuring Sir John Tomlinson in the title role, Rosanna Madillus performing several roles, including Cordelia and the Fool, and the Counterpoise Ensemble. The Shakespeare Music Study Group took an active part in fundraising for and coordination of the premiere recording of the music drama, which was live streamed during the inaugural conference of the group in December 2020 for the 155 delegates. Needless to say, it was a great success, unanimously praised by the audience. In this episode of the podcast, John Caskin speaks of the process of composition, his inspirations, and his collaboration with Sir John on the libretto. Sir John elaborates on his reading of the tragedy and connections between Lear and Wharton from Wagner's Ring Cycle. He also tells us how he prepares this and other roles during the lockdown. There is a lengthy, fascinating exchange between the two Johns, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. So, John Caskin, JC, is this your first Shakespeare-inspired work, and where did the idea come from? It is my first Shakespearean-inspired work, although thinking back about things that I've written, there are some Shakespearean parallels throughout. Um, In fact, at one point, I got very keen on writing an opera on Pericles, and what drew me to Pericles was the reconciliation between the father and the daughter. And that is exactly the theme that we have in King Lear and in The Shackled King. Um, The idea for for, for the new work actually came from John. And it's very interesting that I've, this is my third collaboration now with the ensemble Counterpoise. Mm-hmm. And the first two pieces, one was, the first one was called Deadly Pleasures, which is about an episode, a rather unsavory episode in the life of Cleopatra, who is a Shakespearean character. Um, and that idea came from Barry Millington. And the second uh, piece was Kokoschka's Doll. And that was also Barry and Deborah's idea. Um, and it was working on that piece with John singing the part of Kokoschka um, that I got to know John uh, rather, rather well, and his, particularly his singing, and was, was thrilled to work with him. And then it, it, it was John's idea. I can remember sitting in a beer garden somewhere in, in, in Sussex, 
uh, after the recording of Kokoschka's Doll, and John turned to me and said, I've got an idea about King Lear. And it was a wonderful shock to the system, because <clears throat> if you'd said to me, you know, Do you, what's the next work you might think of writing? I think the last thing I would have said was King Lear. But because it was John who was making the suggestion, and I saw immediately the, the, the connection between him, the singer, and actor, and the character of King Lear, it was a very positive step, and it, that's really how it began. Hmm. Yes, I, I, I remember that event. I remember that beer in the beer garden. Uh, I, I thought, I mean, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Memories are different. I thought the original seed of the idea came from Barry Millington. Oh, well, it may, maybe. Maybe I had too much beer. Barry Millington, who, who with Deborah runs uh, Counterpoise, as John has said. Uh, and we, we had done uh, Oscar Kokoschka. I had done Kokoschka's Doll, which was great. And we'd done the successful recording of it, uh, which has been highly praised, John, hasn't it? It has, yes. We've had yeah. some very good reviews, yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I think Barry, okay, you know, whispered in my ear, well, what are we going to do next? What's going to, and, and how about Lear? Uh, I suppose with my sort of career and the way I am now, you know, uh, people think of King Lear. Uh, Voltan, of course, is the great role that I have, uh, without blowing my own trumpet, made my own, or for 20 years I've made it my own. Um, and there are connections between Voltan and King, King Lear. Uh, but um, yes, I, I then mentioned it to John in the beer garden, uh, or JC in the beer garden. And, uh, and we started thinking about it. And I, re I just remember a train journey coming back from Manchester College. You know, I'm the president of the Manchester College, Royal Northern Manchester College. And uh, I'd been working with some students and I had a long train journey back. Uh, and I just started thinking about how, the, how a piece about King Lear could be structured. You know, a 45-minute a, a piece like Kokoschka uh, is. Uh, and I had this idea that, you know, towards the end of the play, they are both thrown in jail by Edmund. Uh, and Cordelia protests, but uh, Lear says, no, 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 we two alone will sing like birds of a cage, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, when thou shalt ask my blessing, I'll kneel down and ask for thee forgiveness. And we'll sing and pray and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies. You know, and, and I thought, if in prison, the, the king and his daughter, uh, they're together, nostalgically they could reenact, they could re reminisce about the events of the play, the things that have happened to them in the last six months, I mean, how long is the play, let's say, four months, three months, uh, the events in the play, and and almost uh, act through them and relive them uh, before Cordelia's tragic death. And so that was my basic idea. And so I, I started basically collecting everything in the play that has to do with Cordelia and Lear even because Cordelia, of course, is absent. She, after the first awful scene when she's rejected by her father, she goes off with King of France and isn't seen again until Lear, she wakens Lear up towards the end of the play. Uh, but uh, I just thought um, I collected all this material together and, and came up with about four, four scenes 
that could be lived through in the prison with them together with Cordelia playing other characters, the fool in particular. Uh, and then I said, at some point I gave this material to John, JC, and uh, we began a dialogue and alterations were made and we tried various things. And um, uh, and then John, John has made it quite a big decision in in having a sort of oscillation between a particular point and, and the enactment of the scene. So we keep coming back to a particular point. And in my mind, I, I don't think John intended this, but in my mind, that moment that we keep going back to is the death of Cordelia. It's as if, and then we come to life and we enact the scene, and then we retreat to that awful moment, the death of Cordelia. And then at the, the very last scene, uh, she really is dead in the, 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 the last time. Um, and um, in January, as JC said, we we sang through the oh, Rosanna Madulas, so the mezzo soprano, uh, and we sang through this just with piano. We didn't have the instruments, uh, and um, it's going to be a wonderful, it's going to be a wonderful piece. It is a wonderful piece. I, I have the fortune of having the score and having, and thanks to John, uh, Jason <laughs> sent it to me. So I do know it is a fantastic work and I had looked at the libretto as it was being worked on. So it's, it's fabulous. You said, uh, John, you talked about some um, affinities between uh, Wotan and, mm. and mm. King Lear. Um, I, I can see what you're talking about there, especially father and daughter. And can you just say what's, Yes. Yes. Um, oh, it's always dangerous talking about Wagner's ring. <laughs> you never know where to begin and you, ne you can never end. But Wotan and Lear, they were both kings. You, you know, Wotan was the chief god. He ruled, actually ruled in historical fact. He ruled Northern Europe for a thousand years or more. As you know, Wed you know Wednesday, Warden's Day, Wotan's mm. Day, you know, we still have his... You know, in the in the language uh and he was believed and he had credibility for a thousand years and he was all powerful uh a little bit like you know Lear has had a successful strong kingship but he's coming to the end and Lear makes a very you would think very benevolent decision to divide the kingdom between his three daughters although he has a trick up his sleeve he wants the best bit to go to Cordelia he wants the big bit the you know the largest bounty should go to uh, his joy. His, that is, she is his favorite daughter. Wotan's favorite daughter is Brunhilde. Uh, and they are very close. And Brunhilde knows Wotan intimately. And the big rift with them comes when Wotan commands her to make sure that Siegmund is killed. Siegmund is Wotan's beloved son on earth. Brunhilde has the task of ensuring that he is killed. This is for, I can't go into the reasons for that. It's just too complicated. But it's <laughs> all wonderful. But, uh, and she, she refuses. Uh, she, no, she, she is told, she's given the order by her father, who is desperately unhappy at making this decision. But he instructs her to do this. She goes to the the battlefield, she goes to the place where the battle will take place between Hunding and, and Siegmund. And she cannot 
she she cannot see through the task. She tries to save him. So she is disobedient to her father. Uh, Votan intervenes, sees what is happening and ensures that Sigmund is killed. Uh, but that is that is the big rift between the two of them. And and if, you're, if you have to be a god, you cannot... A, you have to be true to yourself. If, if you are seen to be disobeying your own rules and your own orders, you lose credibility and you just disappear in a puff of smoke. The gods are just like the Greek gods. They're very strong, but they're also very vulnerable. And and uh, Brunhilde, she disobeyed the order of the of, of the god, so she had to be banished, and she becomes a woman. She's she, she's placed on the top of the mountain, surrounded by fire, as we, as we know, it's a wonderful image. Uh, and her, uh, she is finally discovered by the son of Siegmund. Uh, uh, Secret, and together they basically redeem the world. They save the world, which is Vortan's great plan. And now, as regards Lear, there's the big schism with Cordelia because in the first scene, Lear, I think this is the way it might take on the, the, the Lear's take on it is that Goneril will get a bit, and Regan will get a bit. His two daughters of the country, the big bit, the special bit, will be for Cordelia. She will marry the Duke of Burgundy, who Lear is in league with. Lear will be the power behind the throne. Everything will be perfect. But Cordelia is unfortunately in love with the King of France. This is all John Tomlinson's thoughts on before. <laughs> you know, but as an actor, you have to have thoughts about what happens, what's in people's minds before the curtain goes up. She loves the King of France. The King of France loves her. All this is, it's not just me inventing these things. This is in the text coming up. But as in all great operas, it's, there's nothing explicit. Cordelia never says, oh, France, I love you dearly. Although the King of France comes close to saying it to Cordelia. Uh, but uh, where was I? So Cordelia scot completely scotches the King's plans by refusing to say anything about how much she loves her father. When I ask Goneril, she trots off, I love you very much. Reagan, oh, I love you loads. He asks Cordelia, so they both get a chunk of the country. He asks Cordelia, nothing. Nothing. She says nothing. She, she will not. Now, for whatever reason, uh, I, I, I think it's basically because she loves the King of France dearly. And she cannot say that she loves her father all 100%. And Leah completely flies off the handle, he goes crazy, and he banishes her in a very similar way to Vortan banishing Brunhilde. In the case of Vortan, he is so furious with her because he loves her so dearly, it makes him even more furious. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like the child who wants to run across the road and the mother is, is furious with that kid and says, you know, I'll murder you when I get home, when we get home. But it's because she loves the child so dearly. And there's that in both of the cases. Leah loves Cordelia dearly, and he says so. But when it goes wrong, he is completely furious. You know, it's like a couple in a divorce who have loved each other dearly, but just <clears throat> the explosion. And it's the same with both of the Rotan Prince and with Leah Cordelia. And uh, with Cordelia, there, there is 
uh, a reunion, of course, at the end, and they they come together and are completely at one again. And Leah has, again, in common with Vortan, Leah has learned wisdom. He has learned of all the mistakes. He realizes the mistake he made as a king. Slowly through the play, you see him realizing, why did I not do this? Why did I behave like this? And certainly with Cordelia, he read, why did I do that? You know, oh, Leah, 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 beat at this gate that let thy folly in and thy dear judgment out. Mm -hmm. And we have that, that feeling with Vortan. Vortan never sees Brunhilde again. Brunhilde prays to her father just before she dies, at the very, very end of the Remon. And she says, Ruwe, Ruwe, do God. Right, rest, now you can rest. The ring is safely back in the Rhine. We will deliver it back to the Rhine. The world will be saved. You can die. And the gods set fire to themselves. And, and um, you know, and, and, and die because they know they are useless. And again, in with Leah, you have the feeling that he's useless. He's an old man. He has given his power away. Another parallel. He has given his power to his daughters. Vortan has given his power to Siegmund, uh, Siegfried, Brindle, to free people on the earth, free human beings who can do things which he cannot do. He is powerless. He was great, but uh, he is, having created free man and woman, he realizes he's finished. He's irrelevant. And Lear is irrelevant. You know, it's a, it's a similar... It's a, it's a very, there are so many parallels. If, we, if, we're, thinking of, if we're thinking of other parallels, um, uh, something else that appealed to me about taking on this project was my very first opera is called Golem. And it's about an all-powerful leader of the community who, as an old man, remembers what he tried to do as a younger man. When his kingdom was, or his community was under threat, he used the power of the Kabbalah to create a, an artificial savior figure, a man of clay, a golem. And he had the arrogance to assume that not only could he do this, but he could control the golem. And it went terribly wrong, and the golem had to be unmade. And that's basically the story of the opera. But the parallel with Lear, it seemed to me, is that we have an old man remembering at the end of his life what went on earlier on, and it went wrong. And we have an old man who is arrogant, mm. and he does not see. And it's only towards the end of the opera that he begins to see clearly where it went wrong. Um, and this is one of the many polarities, it seems to me, in Lear, in, in, in the play of King Lear, that on the one hand you have arrogance and coldness at the beginning, and at the end you have warmth and humanity. And you can go through the whole play and find a whole series of parallels. I mean, there's another parallel with Lear and Cordelia and Gloucester and Edgar. Mm. You know, Gloucester is literally blinded and cannot see, but eventually he ends up by seeing everything. Mm. So the, the idea 
that um, uh, I was about to embark on a, on a King Lear project, I felt in a sense I'd sort of dipped my toes in this with my first opera, Golem. And also the idea of an old man remembering. Now, I know in, in, the, in the original Shakespeare, we get things pr progressing in time. But in the way that John and I shaped it, we start at the end and it's ambiguous in the, in the text. We don't quite know yet how we're going to present this theatrically, whether Cordelia is actually a presence on stage or if she's a figment of his imagination, he's remembering. But the idea that John said that, you know, we keep coming back to this. I, I was very keen on the idea of memory, that we start with the reconciliation and Cordelia about to die, but then we go back to the, to the division of the kingdom and then as a, a sort of a refrain or a reprise, we go back to that opening prison scene and then we have the fool scene and then we go back to the end. So the, the idea of, <clears throat> of Lear recognising Cordelia but about to lose her was a, 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 a refrain or a reprise which attracted me very much because in Kokoschka's Doll, if you remember, John, you have a refrain where you are writing letters to Alma Mahler mm. and it's like an e-day fix which goes all the way through the work and I find that this is I found that a very powerful image uh, all the way through Kokoschka's doll and I wanted something similar uh, in, in The Shackled King. So there are lots of parallels I, I mean hearing about Wotan and Wagner is fascinating um, and, and for me personally uh, has never been on stage singing Wagner, um, but my experience through the, the, the rabbinical figure of the rabbi creating this golem, that, 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 it seemed to me that was a sort of a, uh, a Shakespearean story as well. Just in this uh, idea of remembering, I was wondering if you were, you were aware of Macmillan's uh, short opera on Hamlet. No, I'm not, actually. No, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not. It's yes. very interesting. It is. It uses Tchaikovsky's music, of course, but it's not a new music. Uh, but the choreography was made in the way that, uh, just as Hamlet is dying, you know, as he's received the last wound and he's lying right after the rest is silence, he remembers everything that has gone and happened, and he remembers Ophelia. Of course. Are you talking about James Macmillan? Not Kenneth Macmillan. Kenneth Macmillan. Kenneth Macmillan. Yeah. Yes. All oh, right. Okay. So it's it's a very interesting idea. They kind of and I think they I, I think they nicked it. The Soviets also had a couple of ballet uh, ballets based on Hamlet, which is kind of about right after as remembering and you know. Mm. What, just well, you know, theatre theatre is very good at this. Uh, you yes. know, the stream, the stream of consciousness because that's what we do in real life, isn't it? I mean, what, what goes on in our heads? Uh, you know, we're con we might be concentrating on one thing writing something, let's say, a letter I mean, in, the, in the instance of Kokoschka. But our mind goes off, and our mind goes off, and we can reenact scenes. We can be somewhere else. We can be the, the other side of the world, and we can be in a street, and we can remember a doorway, and we can be, and we're doing it, or peeling potatoes, you know. This, this, actually, this happens to me all the time, preparing vegetables. If you're, if you're peeling potatoes or whatever, I go, I, you know, I go to Stuttgart, I go to Tokyo. <laughs> I go. I, I go on these. It's incredible. I, 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 you know. I, well, I hope dementia's not setting in. But, uh, but um, so it's very lifelike and it's theatrically very effective. Uh, but just to, to, to finish, dementia is very important with Leah. He starts 
losing it. But with losing it, he becomes wiser too. That yeah. John was saying uh, that, uh, you know, to, he realizes his faults. He attains wisdom. He realizes the truth. And uh, that's absolutely right. But along, absolutely alongside the progress of dementia. It is one of those uh, paradoxes of Shakespeare. It's also in Ophelia that when she goes mad, she tells the truth. Mm. Uh, when Gloucester goes blind, he sees the truth, the reality. Mm. The, it's, um, it has got to do with the madness becoming a way of seeing the, the real thing because you kind of let go of all the inhibitions. But one of the masters of, 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 of working with memory is, is Harry Bergwissel. Mm. And uh, with, there is a lot of, we think, repetition in his music. But Harry's idea is a brilliant one, is he asks the question, but is it as you remember? Yes. It may not be the same. Mm. So when we get repetition, it's never the same. And, uh, and so I think that when, when the music uh, 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 is revisited in The Shackled King, I think I'm a bit more literal than Harry, but nevertheless, it is changing all the time. We come at it from different angles. How did you go about working on the libretto? That's an interesting thing. You know, you decided to keep the words of Shakespeare, which is not... Absolutely. They're not in the right order, but <laughs> all, the, all, all, the word, all the words of Shakespeare is with lots of cuts. Well, John sent me, as, as he said, John sent me a draft and I looked at it and I, I then read through the play and I compared one with the other and I thought, well, do we need this or are we missing that? And I mean, John knows far more about the play uh, than I do, but I, there were things that I, I suggested that we might include and things that we uh, could perhaps do without. I mean, we, we, we have, we're a very small outfit. We've got two singers and four instruments. So we have to be very, very e economic. And um, I think that my principle generally in, in bo both the operas I've written is that uh, less means more, that the fewer words, the better it is. Um, and eventually we, we, we reached a consensus both over the, the content of the libretto and also the title as well, which we, we, we struggled over for some time. But um, I think that's, what the, that's the nature of collaboration. Yes, I remember I was, I, I, I would have, I wanted it to be called Two Birds of the Cage, and you wanted something a lot more strong. Well, then, then after that, you you moved you moved on. After that, you moved on to Lear Imprisoned. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and I was being very difficult. <laughs> no, you were. No, the Shackle King is very very strong. Very strong. I wanted something that when when you said it, it's it's it sparkled with energy, just as Kokoschka's doll with mm. all those K's. And that gave me the idea of taking the idea of the K of king and thinking of something. And shackled is, is a very, is a fascinating word because it's ambiguous. I mean, it means of course, imprisoned and chained, but also means bound and constrained. Mm. Um, and it seemed to me that all these things were part of what Lear was experiencing. He was, he was chained to what he did. Mm. It would not let him go. Yes, it's the fate of very of many powerful men. They have their heyday, uh, very Boltonesque, uh, but then they are shackled within their own policies, their own rules, their own yeah. behaviour. Yeah. 
But as I say, dementia frees, dementia in a way frees him in the yes. end to achieve, to achieve wisdom. The more you go on in the play, the more he understands humanity and he understands how he has neglected humanity. Uh, you know, oh, I have taken too little care of this. You know. But Why? do you think he could have done that without the fool? Um, well, the, the, you mean the progress through the... The, 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 the gradual realisation. The I mean, gradual realisation. feeds him tidbits and it's yes. in, in his riddles and, and questions him. Well, right from the beginning, the fool... Uh, Leah loves the fool, and the, and the fool can say anything to him. Any, the most rude thing, the most pertinent, knuckle mm. things he can say. And Leah seems to appreciate the truth. He seems to like the company of the fool because perhaps he's the only person in the court who can tell him the truth. And he has great affection, of course, great affection for the fool. And of course, almost his last phrase is, and my poor, poor fool is hanged. Mm. No life, no life. So even at the death of Cordelia, he thinks of the fool. Mm. Uh, but it's interesting what the fool thinks of, I said to Kim Begley, who's in our, the, the singer who's in our, straight play production there. I, I have great affection for you, but what do you think of me? <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the fool thinks of Leah. Uh, John, perhaps you should talk about instruments in the camera. Yes, I was just going to ask, did you use, because when you cut the words, does it mean that you gave some of those words and the, the, some of those characters to instruments and to other, you know, a bit like setting a, the play to to film when you get rid of quite a lot of words in a you know adaptation to film you do those in the visual aspect you know you just create those words but visually so how was the setting to music came the instruments and voices and everything well the first thing to be said is that it's a very um, tricky ensemble um, it's saxophone trumpet violin and piano um, so in a sense you know you've got a brass instrument a wind instrument Mm -hmm. uh, a string instrument and something that is a bit percussive. So you, you've got that spread, but it, it's, you've got to accept that basically the piano carries the weight of responsibility. Um, and of course, you know, a trumpet's quite useful in heraldic terms. If you want to, 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 to paint a, a courtly scene or whatever. Um, but I didn't really do that in this. I think that the, the ensemble, the sound of the ensemble, slightly abrasive, but also capable of great warmth, um, not only sets the scene, um, but it also carries the energy. I mean, in the storm scene as well, which I, I, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing, but it is very, very difficult music. But the storm scene isn't so much portraying an actual storm, as summoning the, the storm that's already within Lear himself. Mm. It seems to me that the storm is an outward expression of what the torment that Lear is going through. Mm. So the, the energy of the, of the music that the, the instruments are uh, uh, engaged with um, is, is a way of, of enhancing that, of adding to the words rather than trying to paint the words. Um, at other times, the the instruments will through the very delicacy or transparency or intimacy with which they are used will will help to hopefully um, add a bit more light 
shed a bit more light on, on, on the words that are being used. But I, I've, not, I've, I've not really used the instruments to, to, to portray specific things. It's, it's as if it's like a full orchestra condensed, isn't it? In that you have yeah. one stringed instrument, you have one wood, yes. you have yes. one brass, and you have the piano, it's more than percussion, but it's a percussive time. But I, I think it's a wonderful group. Unlike the other counterpoise works, I've used some very simple percussion in this. Um, and uh, I've used at the very beginning, the instrumentalists play claves. You know what claves are, little short pieces of wood. That sort of sound. Um, and I was horrified when I watched Kurosawa's film, Ran, with music by my dear friend Takamitsu, to, to realise that at the very end of the film, he ends with claves doing exactly that <laughs> um, but I, my idea came you know without my re realizing that um Takamitsu had done that I mean I had seen the film many many years ago but I haven't I haven't remembered but the other thing percussion instruments I've used um is is a, a shell rattle for chord, for the for the fool just mm. as, as a signal that this is not Cordelia I mean the, 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 the mm -hmm. Rosanna Madilus who will sing the part of Cordelia has to transform into a, a, a fool and the shell rattle was a an oral signal and I was very amused to read in Kosintsev's wonderful book Space for Tragedy he warned Shostakovich not to use a rattle for the fool <laughs> oh, really? and I don't, I, I'd already decided on that and so I had to send up a, send up a message to Mr Kosintsev and apologize. <laughs> I was guilty of introducing you to that book. It's just that um, Kozintsev's um, Shakespearean films, in particular his Hamlet, the Soviet Hamlet, really shaped me as a person. I think it's a, it's, his film of King Lear is remarkable. If, I think the King Lear is even better than Hamlet, to be honest. Mm. He made that music and visuals and the, uh, the adaptation. It's just everything mm. is interwoven together. It's just a mm. complete ensemble. And a genius touch to have that, that actor or uh, King Lear kind of, you know, bird-like and very fragile. That's fragility. Mm. It's Russian with a capital R, isn't it? I mean, it's a, you know, the Russian culture is, runs absolutely it's embedded into all of that, into those films. Absolutely. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Yeah. Any inspiration? Other inspirations you have, John, um, for your depiction of you know, in terms of any productions you've seen or any films or any of of Shakespearean people. Of the King Lear, King Lear in general. King Lear. Um, I, um, I recently went to see Ian McKellen do King Lear in on in the West End, which was interesting, uh, and. Um, Anthony Hopkins was on the television not long ago. So there's mm. a recent thing. Uh, other, otherwise, it's way back. I've experienced it, you know, years ago. And I've and I've seen the Russian film I've seen too, which is uh, powerful. So um, yeah, I suppose um, as an opera singer, the you know there's quite a lot of Shakespeare, quite a lot of operas based on Shakespeare plays, of course. Uh, I, I haven't, you know, I, I haven't featured majorly in those in those roles. Actually, I've got a list. I made it before this, before we started on the, on this call. I, I made a list. So we have um, per, the Fairy Queen herself is based on *A Midsummer Night's Dream*. Uh, 
the characters I played in those were, were in, in that piece were sort of mask-like characters. Macbeth, one of the very first roles I ever did was the murderer and the apparition at Glyndebourne, way back in 1971 or something. Banquo, that is a great, great role. I did a lot in, on, on many stages when, when I was younger. Romeo and Juliet, Friar Lawrence, the, the Berlioz, it's a magnificent role in the Berlioz. Berlioz expands that role to be Friar Lawrence, to, to be the great unifying force at the end of the piece, bringing the families together. Yeah, fantastic tune. Guno Friar Lawrence. Guno is, 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 yeah, is more, less to the fore. Bellini, Capoletti Montecchi. Othello Lodovico, Verdi's Othello, Lodovico, again, minor but important character. Hamlet, there's Ambrose Thomas, there's the ghost, very beautiful, with a recording of that. And then Brett Dean, Hamlet, mm-hmm. born three years ago, which I did the grave digger too, and the, and uh, the player king in the, in the enactment of the play. Um, um, the merry wife, but Gustav Holtz, used English folk song for The Merry Wives of Windsor. Mm-hmm. You know that piece, John? The At the Boar's Head by Gustav Holst. I don't, no. And he used the, he used the string of English melody uh, and set exa- the exact Shakespeare text to it. Uh, and and then, uh, oh, I have King Lear by John Caskin is the final one. <laughs> <laughs> which, which we hope that is going to happen very soon. Absolutely. But, uh, they, but mm-hmm. sorry, just to finish, the, yeah. the, the reason I'm doing um, uh, uh, King Lear, the straight play, is yes. because of Vortan. Because directors and people have seen me do Vortan, and they have said, we must do Lear, we must do King Lear. And Keith Warner is the director of uh, this one next summer uh, in Hampshire. And uh, I've done Vortan with him as director at Covent Garden. And he said, we will do, we will do King Lear the Straight Play. Because particularly at the end of Vortan's life in Siegfried, uh, it's very Lear-like. And so that, in a way, that's the way I've come to the play. Uh, but the, the, just one, just before I forget, just one thing about Shakespeare, which I've always so has meant so much to me, is the fact that Shakespeare never preaches. Mm. Shakespeare just reflects life in all its complexity, in all its detail, in all its wonder, in its, its glory, and its depression, it's all, in all aspects. Uh, but he never... There's no message in a way. There's no overt message. Uh, and I love that. Mm. I, I, I love that. Uh, that's why it's never dated. That's why it will never ever, you know, that, that's why it will always be uh, totally relevant to everybody who walks on this earth. Mm-hmm. Just, just to add to what John has been saying about um, Wotan and Brunhilde, I think it's just worth mentioning that um, the inspiration for, for the whole evening in which the Shackle King will form the second half was Barry Millington's. And his idea in the first half is to present something called Brunhilde's dream. Uh, so reflecting on the daughter 
uh, who, and then uh, focusing on the father in the second half in Lear. And he had a similar idea for Kokoschka Stoll, that that would form the second half, um, a work about the relationship between Kokoschka, the painter, and Alma Mahler. But in the first half, which you call the art of love, it was uh, uh, a study, if you like, of, of the woman of Alma Mahler. So the, the, the two projects are sort of have a, a lot in common, don't they, John, that we've got mm -hmm. Alma and Kokoschka, and we've got Brunhilde and Lear. Mm. Um, so the, the, the theme, the thinking bit of Barry's behind that, I think is really quite brilliant. Yeah, so I think, I think in the first half, I think Barry would like me to sing Voltaire, part of Vaudan's Farewell. Uh -huh. The delicate part of Vaudan's Farewell uh, to uh, Brunhilde. Uh, you know, and I think that will be, as I understand it, that might be the beginning of the evening. And then, okay. and then mm -hmm. there, will be the, there, there will be Brunhilde's. And then we will move into the Shackled King in the second half. Yes. Wonderful. Concept. The concept is great. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, really interesting concept. So um, I have the copy of the score here, and I see that you've called it drama, not, you know, cantata. Or... Was that in order to make sure it's not considered a cantata or opera, John? Or was that... Mm. You know, I, I was trying to remember what you've called it. And to be honest, I remembered that in my call for papers and wherever I promoted it, I actually always thought, what should I write? What, how, what should I call it? You know, more mm. drama, you know. Um, uh, well, I think it, it's because uh, the first of my three works for Counterpoise um, was Deadly Pleasures. It was commissioned as a melodrama for a speaking voice and four instruments reading a, a poem by D.M. Thomas, uh, which was a, a, a fleshing out of a poem that had been started by Pushkin about Cleopatra. The second work was Kokoschka's Doll. Um, and when Barry Milton told me that, that John was going to be taking the part of Kokoschka, I said, well, he can't just speak. He's got to damn well sing as well. So therefore, it couldn't literally be a melodrama. So we called that a monodrama. Mm. Um, and because uh, the, the Shackled King has two singers, then it couldn't be a monodrama. So I went from mellow to mono to drama. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was my thinking. But um, it's not an opera. Could, could I just chip in just for a second? Yeah. Well, just, just to say that one of the features of the, of the setting of these pieces for my voice the, 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 the way John writes for my voice, uh, it's a mixture of pure singing, pure speaking, and all the spectrum in between, from uh, Sprechgesang, sort of speak, speaking, singing, uh, from the very driest speaking to the very wettest singing. And, um, and I love that. I think that's probably an ability that a voice like mine, you know, basically bass baritone voice, has. We we can the, the speaking voice is very much on the same level as the singing voice, so we can uh, we can really use that facility to alternate between all those po possibilities. And John's done that brilliantly. And that's one of my concerns. Is I've done the same thing for Cordelia. In, with Rosanna, but I'm not convinced it's going to be quite so 
easier to bring off with a female voice, a higher voice. But we'll see. It will be a different... It'll be a different yeah. altogether, I yes. Mean, the, the, the lower male voice, the speaking voice and the singing voice, as I've said, are absolutely in the same place. Mm. One can really sing, it's absolutely there. Not yeah. it, it, it may be, but I'm sure Rosanna will find it. We'll, we'll, we'll find a way around, yes. So, so that's the reason why um, it, it, it's not an opera, it's certainly not a cantata, um, but it's a piece of, of, of music theatre. I, I remember one of the critics, and I shan't, remember, I shan't mention his name, after the premiere of, of Kokoschka's Doll, described it as a piece of failed music theatre. <laughs> and it was such a stupid thing to say because it wasn't, it isn't music theatre, it literally is a monodrama. But mm -hmm. I think this is going to be more, much more in the camp of music theatre. Fabulous. Uh, actually, yeah, what made you decide, what makes you decide what to um, give to, to the voice to sing, what to speak? Are there specific, is that just musical decisions or um, dramatic? Psychological. Okay. It's psychological. I mean, I think reading some of these lines, you begin as Shakespeare with the speaking voice, but there are certain points where you can imagine that the voice will take off and it will become singing. And in certain places, it has to be sung. So, for example when Gonrill and Reagan are trying to insincerely convince their father how wonderful their love is for him. They, it, you know, I had to try to, to characterise them, and I did that through, through a, a, a sort of a, a singing style in the harmonic language, which was almost too good to be true. This is Shakespeare's uh, words as well, isn't it? That he gives the most flowery and elaborate yeah. when yes. they are not sincere. But what the, the most difficult thing I found was trying to find the music for the fool when the fool is singing the songs. Um, uh, you know, for example, uh, he, he that has a tiny little wit with it, with hey-ho, that song of the fool. And I've written as an instruction for the singer with jocular wisdom. <laughs> and it seems to me that, that that is what the fool is doing at that point. And then the, the, the song, when, when priests are more fit. Um, and I've, I've, I've said that this should be done with, with a sense of satire, satirically. But uh, otherwise, I think it, 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 it felt to me as, uh, you know, composing it, that there, was, there were certain lines which absolutely had to be spoken as John would speak them as if he was acting on the stage. And there were others where I wanted it to be more constrained, where the, the, the words are, are sung rhythmically, absolutely to my rhythms, but the pitch is whatever pitch you want. And then others where I want a very high pitch, for example, descending to a low pitch. There are other places where, as John said, it's the spectrum of, of on the spectrum of, of Sprechgesang. Um, and it seems to me that, that Shakespeare sort of gives you this. He, he, he tells you, you know, where the voice should be going in its range. Because it feels, it feels totally natural. And I suppose one example that, that took the, the most extreme case of complete freedom with my speech is blow winds and crack your cheek, the storm. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the players are going crazy with this, with this storm, which is, as you say, in my head. But it's also washing me clean. There's a joy about it as well. There's various ways. 
Uh, but blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage, blow you cataracts and hurricanes, spout till you're drowned like a steeples, drown the cock. Uh, you have written that with no notes of any kind, no pitches. It's completely free. Uh, uh, a little bit like the wild party in the Kokoshkapis. Mm, that's right. I, I simply put the I put the words into boxes mm. and I place the box in a in an approximate position in the score. Yes. But it really doesn't matter if it's there or not. But it gives you an indication of where it could be. But, that, uh, but it's, but it's the free. other extreme is some very beautiful melodic lines like. Uh, we two alone will sing, will sing like birds with a cage. You know, the, uh, and um, for naked wretches, naked wretches, wherever you are. Interesting that you sing that because I remember we had a discussion about whether we had the space or time for the hovel to appear in this. And I felt it was terribly important that the hovel was there because it's again another polarity, you know, that he starts off in the palace or the castle mm. and he ends up in the pigsty. Mm. Mm. And that, that um, descent uh, 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 on his journey to absolute clarity of seeing where things have gone wrong mm. and um, was, was important. Totally, to totally. Uh, and in the in the Russian in the Russian film, that is a dramatic, powerful scene, isn't it? Yes. Oh, absolutely. In this in this COVID time, of course, in December, if we do these pieces, it could be from a, um, a production point of view, a staging point of view, that it is very simplified. Yeah. Because we are not going to be able to physically interact. We'll no. we'll have the two no. rule. So I sort of, I mean, I, it's sort of, I, I keep having this idea that the players will be in the middle and Rosanna will have a chair on one side and I'll have a chair on the other side. And, and, and it could be very stylized. Mm. It could be very, perhaps we'll have a chair and a table each or something. Mm. And, and our movements and, and we'll, we'll do that thing of, you know, if you have two singers stage left and stage right, you see each other via the back of the stall, you know, <laughs> I, I'm looking over there, there, mm. over there, and that works. Mm. Uh, so we'll have to think about that. We'll have to think about that, how that is done, but it's going to have to be something like that, I would imagine. Yeah, if, absolutely. If we, if we do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But otherwise you had in mind, I mean, if there was no COVID, you had in mind a staging and, um, you know, stage movements and visuals and everything. Well, I, I um, you know, I tend to imagine things as an, as you know, as an actor, somebody who's done lots of productions. Uh, I tend automatically to be thinking of things like that. And um, my first, my first idea was a bed. Actually, was a bed with Cordelia's body on the bed, slightly, uh, and 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 so on. So I've, I've had various ideas, which I've mentioned to to JC. But it's it's very much work in progress. But um, you know, with Counterpoise, it's a musical group, and any ideas about staging come from me and John, and possibly Rosanna, possibly a little bit from Barry Millington. But um, 
the, that's a big challenge actually for a piece like this because we don't have a long rehearsal period for the staging of it built in as one does for any other opera of any kind, any other stage work. You know, you always have, you at least have three weeks for this piece of, 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 of solid stage rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah, and neither do we have a conductor. No. And that makes that makes things very, very, very tricky. Um, it's all very well in, in Kokoschka's Doll because we managed to stage it where you had eye contact with the pianist. Mm. But if for, if, for example, Rosanna is behind the pianist or to one side, then that can't work for her. So uh, that's going to be very difficult. And, uh, you know, it's not... It's not music which stays at Koshti equals 16.44 from beginning to end. It's changing all the time. So uh, it, it's really very, very demanding for the, for the singers. It's demand, it is demanding. It's demanding also on a memory point of view. <laughs> you know, because um, why, why is it particularly demanding on a, on a memory point of view? I suppose there's so much variation. There, there, things keep changing all the time. There's a pause and then there's a line of dialogue. Then there's a melody, and then there's a singing, and then a stop. And then, you know, it's 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 never, as John was just saying, it never. There's one or two sections where one has, you know, for a couple of minutes there will be steady state, but that's fairly rare, I would say. Mm. What are you? What do you think is helping you, or what is the connection between your straight play that you're acting the whole, you know, tragedy, mm -hmm. and the Shackled King, which is uh, kind of an adapt musical adaptation? Of well, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. Why am I ending up doing these two things uh, <laughs> at the same time? I think it's coincidence, actually, apart from the fact that. I've been an opera singer for 50 years and I'm getting on a bit, so directors have ideas about me being King Lear. Um, <laughs> it seemed to me um, it's just sort of happened naturally. But I think the one is each one benefiting the other at the moment. Um, of course, from a memory point of view, it could be difficult because the JC's text, of course, is, is that there are chunks of Shakespeare, you know, in written as they appear in the, in the uh, you know, in the, in the play. Uh, but other things are juxtaposed. Other things are moved about, as in a sort of stream of consciousness way. Sort of lines appear from nowhere, and 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 so on. So that that could be tricky. But I think it's, I think it's going to be great. I'm enjoying singing it enormously. How are you working on it now? Uh, well, by myself. But one thing that uh, JC was very good about was providing a, a digital... How, how, could you describe it, John? It's a, it's a digital realisation of the instrumental ensemble, ah. uh, which I didn't do myself. It was my, my copy editor, who's very smart, was able to do this uh, using Sibelius sound files. Um, and I thought this would be a very useful thing because it would, A, it's far more accurate than, accurate than my piano playing would ever be. <laughs> um, but it goes forward in time. I mean, it's not very musical in the sense, it's, it's absolutely rigid, but it goes forward in time without stopping and starting. 
and um, and the, the quality of the sounds is pretty good, I have to say. It's not bad. It, I mean, it's a, it's robotic. You know, it's yeah. it's a computer. It's like a synthesizer. Uh, it's like a synthesizer playing it. It's like like a, an automaton playing it. Yeah. It's very it's very useful as to, to check as as I was saying before to check every week. You know, just one through with that, just to check that, uh, just to refresh one's memory about what's exactly what's going on. Well, I think one of the things that I, I, I do make, ways in which I make it difficult for the singers is, is that the, um, the interaction between the singers and their lines and the ensemble is usually, even at its simplest, is really quite intricate. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think however much you, you read the score and study it, um, if you've got a robot who says, actually, no, this is what the ensemble is doing, and your job is to fit these words and notes into this space. Mm. Um, that really kind of breaks the back of it before the, the, the musical with a capital M uh, rehearsal pay, uh, uh, process yes. starts. Yes. Of course, the other thing is that because we just have piano and three instruments, there is no vocal score. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, in an odd sort of way, it's, this, this is more complicated than let's say a uh, you know a Puccini opera let's say with 80 players boiled down to a, uh, a, a piano reduction yeah. a piano reduction the vocal score that is simpler in a way from a learning point of view to a prep, from a preparation point of view than three diverse instruments and a keyboard because you're not always sure exactly what you, am I going to be hearing the violin or will I hear the saxophone here or will it be the trumpet or will I be in the piano? So there's, all the, you know, uh, I'm not complaining. <laughs> no, I think, I think one of the reasons for that, John, is, is that however big the sound is and however orchestral I might claim it to be, fundamentally it's chamber music. Yeah. And although, although the piano is carrying the weight of the sound, um, I, I regard all the instruments as, as, as having an equal voice, and that's what makes it a difficult for you while, while yes. singing, but also almost impossible to make a vocal, uh, a piano score from it. Yes. So, do you, when I say that it feels more complicated and, and sort of because of the three instruments and keyboard, it feels harder than, let's say, a Puccini opera. Mm condensed into a vocal score. Does that make sense to you? Or yes, it does. Rambling? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, Puccini's got great, great tunes. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes it easier. That Puccini wasn't a very good example. But, uh. No, but especially that it's always also accompanied in piano, uh, you're copying, you're kind of paralleling the voice. Yes, yeah. But how did it, John, how did it work with, with something like the Minotaur of Harry Burpussell's? I mean, you were given a, a vocal score for that? Yes. Uh, um, let me just think. Yes, yes. That was boiled down to a vocal score. Yes, I wouldn't have stood a chance learning that with a full score. How, mm. could, I have learned, how could I have learned Gawain and the Minotaur with a full score? Mm. It, it, it's just ridiculously complicated. I mean, the conductor mm. barely follow it. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's how many lines are about Yes. 30 yeah. lines of... of but 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 when you when you then heard the orchestra, could you relate it to the vocal score? Yes. Yes. If, if um, totally yes. Good. It's a bit of a mystery to me. To, to be quite honest, this is a mystery to me because even something as complex as Harry Burt whistle, 
condensed to two lines for pianist, uh, you know, when the orchestra play with all that complexity, you re you recognize it totally from, mm -hmm. from from the piano reduction. It doesn't sort of make any sense, but uh, it seems to work. Mm. So I mean, perhaps. I mean, it would have been good for this to have a piano reduction. If, I know you're saying that would have been difficult, but uh, if, but it's a question of time and money, isn't it? It's a question of, you know, to make a vocal score from... Mm. That's quite a, a big job. Incidentally, mm. before I forget, the front, the picture on the front of the score, a wonderful painting by William Blake. It's fantastic. And that was found by my copy editor, the same one who um, provided you with the recording. And he came across it and said, can I use this for the score? I said, you bet. <laughs> Absolutely. I, it was well, a, I was amazed when I saw that. Yeah, and, and it actually looks like you as well. <laughs> <laughs> There's something very, mysterious, something very mysterious going on here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it actually looks like you and Rosanna. It's quite extraordinary. Well, I, I hope to meet Rosanna as well, kind of with something similar like this. Um, yes. Was that... The, decided from the start that she will be singing several roles you know or I mean once you yes, decide I, that you're going to have a second singer so you decided that it's going to come not just Cordelia but the fool and other characters. Well, I think my my idea right at the beginning with it with the sorting out the text from the play and so on was would be that <clears throat> the two of us would be in prison and Cordelia would be uh, reenacting those other roles. Mm -hmm. Of course, I, I, I am reenacting my, my own life. Uh, she would have the fool and Gondoro and the Regan uh, anymore. Uh, just those three, I think. Just those three, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And herself, of course. So yeah, the gloss, Gloucester line is cut out, Edmund and Edgar, yeah? Yeah. Yes, as, as you said, it is very much um, one of the hallmarks of the play King Lear is the parallel, the two parallel families. Gloucester, Edmund and Edgar on one side, and Lear and the three daughters on the other side, and the mm. the, the, the division in those families, the schisms in those families, and the healings up. You know, that the reconciliation with Edgar for, for Gloucester, the eyeless Gloucester at the end is, is, is wonderful. Uh, and um, similarly with Lear and Cordelia, of course. But it rarely does a play have these two parallel lines. You know, there's mm. two parallel stories going on that connect, that they, they connect with certain strands. Gloucester mm. appears in both and Edgar appears and crosses over. But there's two parallel lines going on the whole play. Of course, for this, the Shackle King, we've just chosen the one line, Leah Cordelia line. It does make sense. Uh, I mean, it's the longest play. You got, you had to cut something out. Yeah. It's also notoriously resistant to uh, setting to music, as far as I know. There's an opera by Aribet Raiman, right. uh, which which I saw many many years ago, uh, which I thought was very very powerful. Um, <clears throat> but you're right; it it is fairly resistant. I've never seen that that, that work. I think recently, uh, the Shakespeare year, you know, 2016, I think Opera de Paris had also uh, put it on. JC, how, um, how do you feel in terms of your own musical language? Do you feel that it's going in this particular direction? And where does the Shackle King stand? Gosh, 
<clears throat> that's really hard. I mean, <clears throat> when I wrote Golem, my first opera, I was absolutely thrilled to realize that whatever the words need, then you find the music for it. So you can, you can take the bucket of purism and throw it out of the window. And if things are um, contradictory, or if you want to dip your toes in different musical styles that, that actually add a lot to the drama, um, then, then that's absolutely fine. And, and from that point on, I've had far fewer hang-ups about um, being, uh, going in, a, in, in, a, in one particular direction. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, this was nowhere more apparent than in Kokoschka's Doll, where I, I took the, the Liebestod from Tristan and Isolde, which is what Alma Mahler sang to Kokoschka just before she seduced him. Um, and this is a kind of the Ide fix that comes all the way through the work. So just at the point when people think, oh, that sounds a bit like uh, Tristan and Isolde, the music's gone somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of musical sleight of hand where you think you're working, where I'm trying to work with things which are both familiar and also strange at the same time. Um, <clears throat> and uh, if that means that uh, you embrace a much wider spectrum <clears throat> of um, a tonality or polytonality on the one hand and extreme consonance on the other, or uh, the innocence of a lullaby to the noise that instruments can make. I mean, the, 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 word, the way that the Shackle King begins is in pure noise of the instrumentalist playing claves and using extended uh, attack and resonance in the piano, uh, which, um, I think probably represent the most extreme part of the of the score, and I wanted that. To I thought for a long time, how can I create this sense of um, you know a bit like the kind of Piranesi dungeons um, of something so frightening and intense, but not something that's going to continue forever because you change the thing rotates and and, and something more human comes in and then, then as that is rotating and then the more extreme darker music comes back so where it comes in in the journey of my own musical style um i would say that it's it it pretty much follows along the lines of things over the last 10 years from apollinaire's bird and madonna of silence Mm -hmm. And also, it's, there are certain things which are not that dissimilar to an orchestral piece I wrote called Sortilege, which was a musical, an orchestral fantasy um, based on uh, Tennyson's idyll of Merlin and Vivian. And it seems to me that's also another Shakespearean theme that, you know, Shakespeare were listening and was looking for ideas about uh, for, for plays. And the, actually, the relationship between the old man of Merlin and the younger woman of, of, of Vivian, who steals his magic to cast a spell over him, um, is, is a wonderful Shakespearean idea. And uh, I was very excited to, to discover that. Uh, well, not, I, I didn't discover it, but it was, it was uh, pointed out to me that this might make, make a good subject for an opera. Um, and I didn't, uh, at that point, pursue that. But I made it into an orchestral piece. And I think there are some uh, aspects of that that uh, musically that uh, are still present and, and very much appear in the Shackled King.
isn't it you you mentioned you mentioned purism throwing the bucket of purism out of the window isn't that something that inevitably happens with opera in a yeah. sense but it's so yeah. closely connected with with theater theater is so closely connected with with, with real life and yes. with real people and with words and text and it's it's dirtier it's, it, it cannot possibly be perfect or pure it's to do with, with inadequacy and to do with all those things to do with our life on this on this earth yeah, yeah. whereas with a purely orchestral piece i, I mean i can't imagine ever composing anything myself <laughs> can't imagine what it's like but presumably with a purely orchestral piece you can it, it could you could strive for purism and perfectionism in some way no chance of that as soon as you have a phrase and have a word have a human voice you know you you, you are you are dealing with flesh and blood and, and uh, all that goes with it well that's right i think if you're writing an orchestral piece you are in control of the musical integrity it's your responsibility but if you're taking over a, a, a dramatic subject then you are very much at the mercy of the the different forces at work in that drama and you have to find a way to respond to them musically um, you, you have to try to, 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 to relive the drama through the music. Mm. So you are at our mercy, John. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything that we should have covered for the sake of anyone uh, who is about to hear this piece for the first time or who has just heard it in case they listen to this afterwards? Yeah, well, I, I suppose with regard... I, I, I don't really know what I'm going to say, but with regard to the play King Lear and John's drama, the, the King Lear, the Shackled King, um, I suppose that's an interesting relationship between the play and the piece. We have the full play, and this is taking the relationship between the king and his daughter out of that. It's taking that strand out of that, and it's sort of distilling it and it's focusing on it. Uh, so it's quite, it's interesting to think about the relationship between that strand that we've taken and the whole play. I was, I was very, very taken in, in reading the Kozintsev book, Space for Tragedy, um, and looking at what he'd said to Shostakovich, who wrote the music for the film, and what Shostakovich said to him. And one of the things that Kozintsev said was that I want to avoid anything loud, solemn and pathetic. I don't want the noise of war. We must try to find a tone that is rather sorrowful and mournfully human. Mm. And that doesn't mean that it's, you know, bloody depressing from beginning to end. But I think mournfully human is a wonderful, a wonderful phrase. And I think if, I, if I've tried to do something musically, without any sense of the sentimental or the arch-romantic. I think trying to encapsulate something that when we experience it as human beings, if it is human and if it's mournful uh, or mournfully human, we recognise that. Hmm. The setting of the piece with Lear and Cordelia going to prison, uh, in a way, it's it's the that's the happiest moment I would say for King Lear in the whole piece. Mm. I would say, 
I'm just thinking now through all of the of the play. He somehow redemption is 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 there. He he can see the truth. He can see where he's gone wrong. He can see, and and there's a joy. There's a complete joy in the deprivation of prison and the company of Cordelia, the the, the person who in the whole world he loves with a pure love, uh, which he abused. So he, you know he abused that relationship and that love so appallingly in the first he made such appalling mistakes uh, but here he will be smiling here in the you know he, he's smiling and he's joyful uh, for those you know for those minutes for those those first few days in prison uh, of course it, it ends in tragedy but i would just say that that's the happiest moment uh, in the play, is that why your your idea for the title originally was two birds in the cage? Probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it sounds a little bit twee, doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't um, have, it, you know, because well, I mean, he says that it, there's an ecstasy about those lines. Mm. It's very beautiful, very beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. You two alone will sing like birds in a cage. When thou shalt ask my blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. And he says, so we'll live and pray and pray, sing and sing tell old tales, tales and, and laugh at and gilded butterflies. Laugh at gilded butterflies and we'll... What's the next line I forgot? Um, <laughs> I haven't checked the next line. <laughs> he that parts us shall brand a, bring a brand from heaven, but that's from a different, pla different place in the play. Yeah. That's at the end of that speech. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, I have, I'm afraid we have played a bit fast and loose, loose with the sequence of uh, text in, in the Shakespeare. We're trying to bring it together to, to help um, create what we wanted to create. Well, that's exactly what should be done. There is a very useful book that has just come out written by Emma, Emma Smith uh, called This is Shakespeare. And it's, got, it's actually kind of written out of transcripts of her lectures and podcasts. In the introduction of it, it starts by saying what makes Shakespeare relevant and important still today is that it's full of gaps because it doesn't tell us the whole story. You know, very early on, Sean was thinking, how long does the play take? It's true. We have to really think hard to think how long it takes. Mm. We don't know how, how old is Hamlet, for example. Mm. And it's all these gaps that allows the text to be alive because we can yeah. Those gaps yeah. with our own understanding and our own feeling, and and with anything that you know the society and the the contemporary context ask us, and I think you probably not without knowing when you compose it, you probably didn't know that the kind of imprisonment and being confined will have a very powerful contemporary mm. elements. Mm. Yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. But the gaps, I mean, the gaps we talk about that's that's an actor's responsibility very much to fill in the, the huge gaps in a Stanislavskian way of what has happened before, as I said, what has happened before the curtain goes up. Every time you go on the stage, where have you come from? What, what has been happening in between? You know, and uh, it, this is what an actor does. And it's a great thing, actually, acting in the, by putting yourself in the shoes of a character. Um, that's, that's, in a way, the only way you really discover what's driving that character from the very beginning all the way through to the end by 
actually walking in his footsteps and 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 so that all the lines that he says are make sense and have a meaning and come from somewhere and lead to something and and uh, and then you know the, the what happens before the first before the curtain goes up in Lear the way everybody all the characters are on stage in that first scene I think pretty well uh, where have they come from who are they what are they expecting when they go in there what are they planning what and so on everything that happens off the stage before the curtain goes up this has become a wonderfully theatrical zoom meeting because as the lights faded john in your room all we can see is your wonderful beard and a bit of light on your forehead and cheeks and you become leer yes. <laughs> it's just all you all we can see is this head it's fantastic <laughs> we just, i just have the window here there's no other light in the room <laughs> I was I was thinking that that yes you are fading into elements. <laughs> <laughs> have I have I disappeared completely? No, no, your beard's still there. The beard is there. The beard only, and some <laughs> kind of vague eyes and. <laughs> yeah. And you, the theatrical acting, do you find it more challenging than operatic acting? Well, we should or we should talk for another hour about that. <laughs> No, because I mean, operatic acting, there's a whole spectrum with operatic, operatic acting as well. It can go from, most people think of operatic acting as, you know, statuesque and uh, stand and deliver, which it is in some, in some cases, in grand operatic um, context. But um, it can also be as detailed and true to life as straight theatre, of course. You know, if you take a Janicek piece or some written pieces or well many many modern many modern works as you know so i suppose the, the the huge difference is that for an actor is that you can choose your own speeds and your own timing when it's the straight play you're in control of you know of the pace of, of, of the way you speak and the any pause any thought any whereas with the music of course you are strictly with the conductor. You're strictly with the conductor. And you and the task is to make it seem as natural as possible. So you're actually with as an opera singer, you're being very detailed with time and precision, but it you must the, the task, the skill is to make it seem as if it's completely natural. Whereas with straight plays, it, it is completely natural. Uh, and you have the responsibility of pacing and using that control that you have you know you're given the control and you're given the flexibility you can say those lines any way you want but that means you have more responsibility on how you deliver those lines and i think for the composer it's a very difficult uh, situation because you cannot Im sit and imagine how it's going to be acted when it's sung but you have to be aware that it, it will be acted and that the actor the singer needs space and time not only to deliver the lines, but also to move uh, in position on stage maybe, or to just stop and reflect. And there are far more gaps in the text in the musical setting, certainly in, in, in The Shackle King, than there would be in the play, mm. um, where you, you, know, you, you might then ask, well, what is, what is the music doing at this point? And that's what I ask myself. What is, why has he stopped singing or speaking? And why has the music taken over? That's more true to life. And, and when, the, when the music's taken over, 
what's this poor guy supposed to be doing on stage? Not can't be hanging around just waiting for his next entry. No, no, he's he has to live. He has to his his thoughts have to live through the music. Yes, exactly. His thoughts live through the music. Absolutely, and it's more true to life actually because um, we stop and we think in normal yeah. life. People don't talk all the time. I mean, in a way, a play is more artificial because people <laughs> come on stage and they're talking all the time. They yes. never stop talking. Yeah. Now, when, when when is there a human situation where people just do not stop talking for three hours? Right now! <laughs> <laughs> Which is also delightful. <laughs> okay, we should... We should um, I think we've finished. Do our separate ways. I've taken so much of your time and thank you so much. It's been, we can go on forever and we should probably do this just as a kind of a talking and letting it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks a lot to you both thank of you. you. It's been an absolute great pleasure to have you. And uh, John, it's great, great to see you again. And you, John, if you can see me. I will, I, you're, you're fast disappearing. Michelle, thank you so much. Love to see you and thank you for setting this up. No, thank you. We're going to make it happen somehow. I've decided. All right. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.